I wonder if you've ever had your own reputation threatened. Ever had your reputation threatened? Maybe someone said something cruel to you on the playground and all the kids started laughing at your expense. Maybe somebody, a a past boyfriend or maybe a girlfriend shared something online that was true but also very hurtful and very revealing, damaging to you. Or maybe someone filed a frivolous lawsuit against you, or, or maybe, maybe they just spread false rumors about you, the kinds of things that were picked up maybe in local news or in the local channels. I wonder, though, how in the midst of any time when you've had your own reputation threatened, how have you responded? How do you respond in those moments? I think most of us instinctively, when we feel our reputation at stake, what do we do? We go into damage control. Right? We, we fiercely fight to protect our own reputation. We fight to, to clear our own names. If we're on the playground, maybe we respond to that cruel comment with a fist. Or maybe a bunch of verbal jabs below the belt. Right? We, we come back in the same manner. Or maybe we go on our own social media barrage. Maybe we file our own lawsuits. Right? We do what we have to do to clear our name. Because that's our instinct, right? Our instinct is to protect ourselves. And not only do we seek to protect ourselves, but we usually seek at the same time to do whatever we can to tear down those who have accused us. Right? We see this sadly in business. We see this in politics. We see it in sports. We even see it sadly in our own relationships. So some of you may be familiar with uh, the Chinese tennis star Peng Shui and this last November, she detailed uh, some allegations and really accused a former vice premier under Xi Jinping of sexual assault. And yet within minutes, that post of hers online disappeared. And within just a few short hours, all mentions online of Peng Shui, they were gone. Her entire internet presence was gone. All of her stories, all of her interviews, all of her wins and losses, gone. And then she disappeared, literally. For weeks, no one could reach her, nobody could find her. An international tennis star just up and vanished. And then as that international outcry mounted, right, she miraculously reappeared weeks later. And in a staged event... She insisted that her allegations were all just a big misunderstanding, and she awkwardly pointed the finger actually at those who were saying that they were, she was just saying you're blowing it all out of proportion, and and this was all, of course, through state-sponsored CCP media. But friends, that's just tragically how the game is played, right? Damage control. It could be individuals, or in that example, right, it could be nations, going into overdrive to protect our reputation at all costs and tear others down. And it's not just the Chinese Communist Party that behaves this way. Nations behave this way. We all instinctively behave this way. So friend, I ask you again, how do you respond when your own reputation is threatened? And that's the question, really, I think, that brings us to our, to our text this morning in 2 Corinthians. So if you've got a Bible, let me invite you to turn there now, 2 Corinthians. 
Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, don't fret. We actually provide Bibles in the, in the seat back before you. And you can find our text this morning on page 964. Yes, we're still on the same page as when we started. Page 964. And uh, if you don't happen to own a Bible this morning, we'd invite you just to take that one with you. Let that be our gift to you, just our way of saying thanks, our appreciation for you coming and gathering with us this morning. But if you are just joining us, the, the church in Corinth, friends, it is a mess. Pulpit mic. There we go. All right. Mike, that was weird. That would have been miraculous if I had figured out how to turn it off without touching it. Well, I was saying the church in Corinth, it is a mess. And that's sadly, right, the hard thing about churches, the hard truth, because churches, of course, are made up of sinners, which means churches are often messy places. They're messy places, and they can be beautiful at times, yes, we can see that, but they also can be messy at times, and that was certainly the case there in Corinth. And though Paul preached and he had planted that church, there was a faction in the church at Corinth that had turned against Paul. And as we're going to see over the next two weeks, it seems that part of the reason they had turned against Paul was because Paul actually had the audacity to call out sin in the church. And so what happened, those who had been called out, what did they do? They instinctively went into damage control. They hired, so to speak, PR firms to clear their own names. And they did whatever they could to drag Paul's own name through the mud. They figure, right, muddy his name, we get to clear ours in the process. And it appears one of their chief strategies in doing this was actually to label Paul as a deceiver, as an individual who says one thing but really doesn't intend to follow through and out of the same breath he will say something else. So this would be a duplicitous man, right? A double talker, one who is defective in character. He's not reliable. He's not trustworthy. Those were the kinds of accusations being made against Paul. And so, again, how will Paul respond? How would you respond in his shoes? What we're going to see here, 2 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 15. one fifteen, and we'll read through 2.4. Paul writes, because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? Well, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us, and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me, 
It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you, for if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. So here, the the letter really takes a deeply personal turn. Right up until this point, Paul has referred to himself right in the first person just one time. It kind of snuck out. and I think it was back in verse 13, if that's what it was. Yeah, back in verse 13. But here, he refers to himself 19 different times in these verses. And his response, though, is I don't think exactly what we might expect to receive. So notice Paul doesn't go out on a full-scale assault against the Corinthians. He doesn't engage in a bunch of negative press, doesn't you know, hire a bunch of negative ads, so to speak, take out ads. No, he doesn't shout and threaten them. Instead of, instead of lashing out against them, he in fact professes his own abundant love for them. No, he doesn't lash out, but... But not angrily, but his abundant love is what he focuses upon. And I think in doing that, Paul teaches us that our words should display God's work for others' welfare. That's sort of a a summary of, you will, of of I think the section, that, that our words, and that's really 15 to 17, should display God's work, really verses 18 to 22, for others' welfare. That would be 123 through 24. And so just a bit like last week, we won't do this all the time, but that, that summary sentence, we'll just break it down. It'll serve as our three points. So we'll think about our words, God's work, and others' welfare. All right, first, our words. Our words. So believe it or not, it appears they've been attacking Paul over his travel plans. Not what we might expect, But you see it there. He opens at verse 15. He says, because I was sure of this. And when Paul speaks of that, he's referring, I think, back to verse 14. Recall there, Paul's sincere hope is that the Corinthians will boast of him as a genuine apostle so that he will, in fact, be able to boast of them as genuine believers. On the day of the Lord, that's Paul's hope. That's his confidence And he says he was confident of that, such that he wanted to come so that, we read in verse verse, uh, 15, you might have a second experience of grace. Now that, that phrase can throw us, second experience of grace. And we hear that word as Christians, and often we think, oh, what does grace mean? Grace means unmerited favor. That's often how we use it in the Bible. And that's true, but that's not all that grace can mean. Because if, that, if that's really what he's getting at, does this mean that Paul's talking about some special outpouring of unmerited favor upon them? Is this like Paul talking about another Pentecost? Is he becoming more charismatic here than we might feel comfortable with? A second blessing of the Holy Spirit? Is that what Paul is saying? 
Is he advocating maybe a, a two-stage version of the Christian life? Some, some higher life theology? What is meant by this second experience of grace? Well, again, that word for grace has a broad meaning. It can mean, it can mean benefit. It can mean favor. It can mean gift. So benefit is actually how the CSB and the NIV translate it, I think, to help. And so it's possible that what Paul's saying in verse 15 he could be saying that, that his visit to them will result in some kind of spiritual benefit to them. And I trust practically as an apostle preaching God's word and encouraging the people, I trust his presence ought to be a spiritual benefit to them. But I don't actually think that's Paul's point when he says it here. Because that word for grace, as the ESV has it, it's used repeatedly in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 to refer to their own financial contributions to the saints in Judea, you know, in and around Jerusalem, who are in need. And so it refers often in this letter actually to financial support. And so when Paul says at the end of verse 16 as well that he wanted them to send him right to Judea, that word for send, that word also implies being sent out with resources and finance and finances and maybe even people and supplies. And so Paul will say in verse 16, right, that he wants to see them. First, he wants to go through Achaia, Corinth, and go up to Macedonia. And then he wants to come back and see them again before sending them off to Jerusalem. So, right, two visits to Corinth. So I think what Paul's saying is he wants the Corinthians to have a double opportunity to be blessed by being a financial blessing to those in Judea. I think that's what he's getting at when he says he wants them to have the second experience of grace. His desire is that those who had abundantly received mercy, like the Corinthians had, would also be abundantly merciful to others, like, again, those in need in Judea. So he's just highlighting that axiom of Jesus, right? It is more blessed to give than to receive. Because that's one of the distinguishable distinguishable marks of God's own grace in our life. That we, in response to that grace, that we too are gracious towards others. So just a basic question then, if you're a Christian this morning, is your life marked by graciousness? Is it marked by an abundant grace? And as Paul's thinking of here, financially and the encouragement and support of other Christians and Christians in their work. Not not reluctantly gracious, not partially gracious, you know, not occasionally gracious when I feel maybe a little guilty, but abundantly gracious, right? Not closed-fisted, but very open-handed with what you have. You know, many of us live practically as if it's more blessed, you know, to purchase than to relinquish, right? To consume than, than to give back. And I'm not going to parse out what that might look like for you here other than to say it is the mark of one who genuinely follows Christ that they abundantly and that they themselves graciously give to the work of Christ, beginning with the work and the need in local churches. And a problem, though, is that, and this is the problem the Corinthians are going to pick up on, is that Paul actually doesn't follow through and make these two visits. And in fact... 
If you know 1 Corinthians, these two visits, those even, that wasn't even Paul's point to begin with. If you read 1 Corinthians 16, Paul was going to visit them and he was going to stay there in Corinth for the entire winter months. So maybe five or six months he was going to stay there in Ephesus. I mean, rather, in, with them in Corinth. But Timothy will visit Corinth. And Timothy's going to learn of, of the disarray and the division in the church. And Paul's going to immediately go to Corinth. And that immediate visit to Corinth, that's the painful visit that Paul notes in chapter 2, verse 1. That's the painful visit. So, yeah, he was going to stay for a long winter, but things went awry. Timothy lets him know, so he rushes over and has an immediate visit with them, this painful visit in 2-1. And after that, in leaving, he's like, you know what, I, I better do these two visits in order to check up on them. But apparently, given the ongoing tension, given the frustration, and given the, the division, he decides against doing both of those visits. You know, maybe Paul, understanding the, the heat of the moment, decides, you know, let's, let's let cooler heads prevail. Let me, let me pull aside. Let me give us and that church some time to think and pray and reflect. And so he actually reverts to a plan C, where instead of doing the two visits, he sends a letter in place of that first visit. And that's the letter he mentions in chapter 2, verse 3, as I wrote, as I did. He's not referring there to 1 Corinthians. He's referring to this severe letter, the severe letter that Lee read from 2 Corinthians 7, the one that caused all of this pain. Well, that word for pain and godly grief, that grief and pain, same word, godly sorrow, godly grief. Well, it's the same letter here, 2 Corinthians 2, 3 and 2 Corinthians 7. And it's a direct letter. And it was godly grief and godly pain that was stirred up as a consequence of that letter such that some of the people there in Corinth ended up repenting. But some hadn't. And Paul had to win the whole church back, which is again why we have 2 Corinthians. And some there in Corinth were capitalizing on these change of plans and they were saying, look, Paul can't be trusted. What does he do? This is the guy who vacillates. Right? You love vacillate. Great ESV word. Right? They're, they're equating Paul right there to the politician who flip-flops. Yeah, who's, who's not really reliable with his word. So we think of politicians who flip-flop. Uh, I could point to Trump, right? who was for same-sex marriage before he had to be against it in order to get the nomination. Or Biden, who was against state-sponsored abortions before he had to be for it in order to get his nomination. Right? This is what happens in politics. And in the same way that they say whatever is politically expedient at the moment, they're saying that some of these Corinthians who dislike Paul are saying that's what Paul's like. You can't trust Paul. No convictions, no character, no real commitment in this guy. But Paul's saying, hey, was I vacillating? That's the question he puts rhetorically to them. Did I make my plans according to the flesh? In other words, do I make my plans as the world does? Saying yes, yes, and no, no at the same time. Right? Those rhetorical questions, well, they presume a negative answer. And Paul's going to argue that his change of calendar was actually no flaw in his character. 
Now he's going to argue that in the ensuing verses, but that's what he states right, right here. He's helping us see, like, listen, I know I've had to change my plans, and we're going to talk about why, but those change of plans is no slight on my character. I actually did that for your benefit, he's going to say. Not to serve me, but to serve you. And Paul's helping us see, though, that Christians are to be people of their word. Christians should not make commitments they don't intend to keep. They shouldn't speak out of both sides of their mouth. They should mean what they say, and they should say what they mean. Now, some of you may be familiar with a a figure, George Fox. He was an evangelical Quaker, sort of 17th century. You might be familiar with, there's a university named after him in, in Oregon, I believe. Where, at any rate, he, he did have some unusual theology, so I'm not going to commend all of his theology to you. There were some real problems there. But one thing that George Fox had was there was great certainty around that man's word. George Fox was known for his uncompromising commitment amount to his own words and to the faithfulness of his words. So there was no amount of wealth or power that could move him. He was a large man at the time, 6'3", an imposing figure. And his word, it took and it stuck. So he wouldn't even tip his hat as was customary at the time. Wouldn't even tip it for a king because such deference was only for God in his mind. He was a simple man. And he used simple speech. And he refused to take an oath, even in a court of law, assuming his simple yes and no would suffice. And it wouldn't for many in society, but it would for him. And people came to trust him because he was true to his word. Such that they didn't even need legal contracts from him. Right? His word was worth more than a binding legal contract. Which, of course, lawyers get around all the time, don't they? No offense to you lawyers. His word was binding. And friends, we've lost that today, haven't we often? You know, sadly, if it suits us, if it benefits us, we'll break our word, not appreciating how our character is actually tied up in our own words. And Paul's saying our words count, and we need to be true to our words. So if you're children... If you're a child, rather, you are a children. How confusing is that? If you are a child in the room, to the children in the room, you know, when you tell your parents you're going to do something, you need to follow through and do it. Employees, when you commit to doing something for your employer, you also need to follow through and not make excuses. We're excellent at excuses. We've learned for thousands of years how to do excuses. Excuses go back to the garden. But Christians should regularly be making excuses. You know, students, when you have a deadline, you need to abide by that deadline and not ask for yet another extension. Spouse, when you give your word, you need to do all that you can do to honor that word. Our words matter. For they display actually God's work in us. And that's what Paul's going to really turn to in the, in the second movement of this section. We're going to think about God's work. And we're going to think about God's work. And that's going to cover really verses 18 through verse 22. 118 through 22. 
Now I just have to ask, if you were Paul at this point, what might you do? You've been accused as you've been, and you might be tempted, like me, to defend yourself, right? To take every charge and to go at them one by one, but not just take the charges, really to go at your accusers, to go at them, and to, to go after not just their charges, but who they are and what they've done and the sins in their own lives that have, that have gotten the whole church to this place and why he's even writing these letters and making these changes of plans. That would be my temptation. But it doesn't seem to be Paul's temptation, does it? In this moment of personal attack, Paul actually doesn't make a personal argument. Paul's going to go on, he's going to make a deeply theological argument. Kind of like back in 1 Corinthians 1, when they're so drunk on personalities, Apollo, Cephas, Paul. What does Paul say? Theologically, is Christ divided? Wonderful theological question in the midst of that moment, that personal moment. So here, makes a theological argument based on God and God's work in Paul's life and in their lives together. So notice how he opens in verse 18. As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. So interesting that Paul chooses right there to highlight God's faithfulness. You might have expected him to say, as certainly as God doesn't lie, or as certainly as God is true, but Paul says certainly as he's faithful. And why faithful? I think we're going to see as we keep going. Notice what Paul's doing. He's going to be arguing here from the greater to the lesser. So it was common um, within Judaism to argue from the lesser to the greater. So if you know the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus there in Matthew, and, and he will say, listen, if, if God clothes like, the lilies of the field and he feeds the birds of the air, how much more will he not right, care for you? So arguing from the lesser to the greater. But in Greek society, it was often common to argue actually from the greater to the lesser. Argue the other way around. And of course, Paul's writing to a predominantly, we think, Gentile audience. And they would say, listen, if this is true in the big situations, it's going to be true in the smaller situations. And Paul's saying, listen, God, big situation, has always been faithful even when his faithfulness was hard to see, God has always been faithful. So in exile in Egypt, God was faithful. In the 40 years of wandering, when all the parents' generation, that generation died, God was faithful. In the days of Esther, in the days of Babylonian captivity, in the days of Roman captivity, there, God is still faithful. I know it doesn't look like it, but he's faithful. And he is always faithful to his word. And Paul's going to say, similarly, though it may not look like it, I am actually being faithful to you. And exhibit A is his preaching to them. Verse 19, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, Paul says, whom we proclaimed among you. Now it's rare just to have Paul refer to, to Jesus in that way. The Son of God, Jesus Christ. A very full expression of highlighting Jesus' person, right? He's the Son of God. And his work, he's the Messiah, he's the anointed one. And perhaps that's to remind them of, of all that Paul preached, the entire content of the gospel that he had preached to them. He's trying to jog their memory. So remember the aim and the focus of my preaching? It was to herald and to highlight Jesus Christ. That's what it was about. You know, so just if you happen to be visiting today, right, maybe this is the first time you've been to UBC or you've been coming around a few weeks, if you're looking at churches, I wonder what you value in a church. 
What do you look for in a church? I'd suggest before you just ask the question of whether or not you like the music or whether or not you like the decor or whether or not you're put off by a, a kind of long worship guide and, and by maybe longer sermons, uh, the main question to ask is, do they preach Christ? Right? That's the question. Do they preach Christ? Not ourselves, not our morality, not just our own political philosophy. Don't prioritize a church that likes itself to prioritize personalities, personal opinions, right? economic, social conventions. When they make those things central, it's not long before it ceases to be a Christian church. You've got to prioritize a church that preaches Jesus Christ, that glories in this gospel and the fullness of this gospel, not shying away from this gospel is going to convict and also coming alongside in this gospel as it, confront, as it comforts, right? And all of that. Jesus Christ alone is to be the sum and substance of all true Christian teaching. So if you're looking for a church, prioritize a church that prioritizes this gospel of Christ. Now Paul's saying, that's exactly what I did. Remember, that's who I preached to you, and not just me. I was going to preach to you, not just me, but, but Silas. Or he says Silvanus and Timothy. Silvanus is just the Latinized form of Silas. So he was a leader in the Jerusalem church. You can read about him in Acts 15 to 18. Of course, Timothy, Paul picked up on his second missionary journey. He had a Greek dad and a Jewish mom, and he was there, a pastor in Ephesus for a season, one of Paul's protégés. All right, and Paul might be highlighting these guys not merely just to, to throw them at the Corinthians as a reminder, but maybe in an informal way to say, hey, listen, in, in typical courts of law, you need three witnesses or at least two witnesses. Here are my two witnesses. These guys can testify that this was the gospel I preached to you. And they can testify to how I acted honestly and transparently and graciously toward you. Either way, they preached the same gospel. And this Jesus they preached was not yes and no. He didn't vacillate. There was no, no confusion. There was no equivocation when they preached this Jesus. But in him, the preaching was yes. Meaning what? Verse 20. Well, that all of God's promises, all the promises of God find their yes in him as in in Christ that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. So Paul's saying all of God's promises, every one of them, converge in this Jesus. They are fulfilled in this Jesus. They find their completion and full expression in this Jesus. Whether it's Adam and Eve in the garden, to Abraham and his offspring, to Moses, to David, right? All of the promises Find their yes and amen, Paul says, in Christ, such that he is the beginning and the end. He is this Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega. God's promises can't be grasped, Paul says, apart from Christ, and they're fulfilled in him. And so if you were to try and grasp and understand the promises of God apart from Christ, that would be like watching a play and then having someone take out the lead role. So there's just these big gaps in these moments where there's no speech. There's nothing happening. And so you see things happening on the stage and you have a sense of kind of what the story's about, but with no protagonist, no lead role, you don't really know what's going on. Or if you've ever read like one of those whodunit novels, and then just imagine someone tore out the last chapter. 
you'd be a little confused. God's promises can't be grasped apart from Christ. But Paul says only in Christ and only through Christ. So if you've come here this morning and you are not a Christian, I hope you understand that for you to be in right relationship with God, for you to know God, to delight in God, to spend eternity with God, well, that can only happen and those promises are only, they only come to pass in and through this Jesus that Paul was preaching and that Lord willing you hear preached here. This Jesus who came and died for sinners and then was raised for sinners so that those who repent of their sins and confess their sins to God, they too one day can be raised, forgiven, cleansed, new life. Those are the promises offered out in the gospel. Only though in and through Jesus. And Paul's saying, if that message is trustworthy that you heard, and you say it is, the messenger who gave it to you, yet so am I. If I was, Paul says, if I was faithful to you in the gospel, am I not going to be faithful in my travel? Oh, come on, guys. You know I will be. In fact, though you have sought, Paul says, to drive a wedge between us, Paul's going to go even further and say, yeah, you've sought to drive this wedge between us, but God has done something greater and he has united us, verse 21. God who establishes us with you. See how he makes that connection. God who has established us with you in Christ and has appointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Right, That's his work, he says, us with you in Christ. So Paul's saying, listen, I know we didn't come from the same hometown. And I know we don't share the same ethnic or religious heritage. Right? Paul was a Jew. They themselves were Gentiles. And I know we don't share the same hobbies. I know we don't engage in the same activities. And I know we don't watch the same movies. And I know the Super Bowl's on. And we'll probably, we'll probably root for different teams. Right? There's nothing similar, so to speak, about us except that God has made us one in this Christ. We're family, Paul says. We share together in Christ the same destiny. Because God has anointed us, Paul says, with his spirit. And he's placed his seal upon us. So the seal was that sort of wax imprint at the bottom of sacred documents. And that seal functioned as a kind of ownership you know, so we're reminded in 1 Corinthians of the seal and how our bodies are not our own and our lives are not our own because we've been bought with a price. We are God's. He owns us. And the Holy Spirit, Paul says, is the guarantee, is the pledge, the down payment, that first installment of what's to come. You know, and in Greek society, that expression for down payment or guarantee, it was actually used of an engagement ring promising a marriage to come. So Paul's saying that the Holy Spirit functions as a kind of engagement ring to his people. The promise that one day he will come back for them. He has pledged himself to them and he will return one day for them. So just a word this morning, if you have come and you are single, and long to be married. 
I recognize that may sound like small consolation, a little consolation at this point. But I just remind you that human marriages that we can so often wrongly glory in, they're not eternal. They're temporal. They're fleeting. And right here, Paul says the Lord has put a ring on your finger. And that ring will never be moved. God will never ask you to take it off. And when you screw up, God will never ask for that ring back. That marriage, he says, will last forever. And by his spirit, he loves you, he has you, and he will be more faithful to you and more gracious to you and more compassionate to you than any human spouse could ever be. That's his commitment to you, he says. That's the guarantee that he's given. Now, stepping back, Paul's reminding them that, that his word has been faithful to the word of Jesus Christ. And together, they are meant to display God's work. So he's going to say, listen, if I bumped my visit, right, you've got to recognize that's for your benefit. That wasn't for me, that was for you. And that's really where he turns next. He's, we're going to think about how God's work is now going to be seen, thirdly, in others' welfare. So our words, God's work, and now thirdly, others' welfare. Others' welfare. That's 123 to 2.4. And notice as Paul begins the section, what does he do? He, he rather starkly calls out God as his own witness. He says, God is going to take the stand. No higher testimony can be given than God himself. And he says, God, you're going to take the stand even against me if I lie in what I say. Right? Strike me if I speak falsely, is what Paul's saying. Verse 23, he'll say, it was, it was in fact to spare you, Paul says, that I refrained from coming to you again. So that word for spare is used later, for example, 2 Corinthians 13, as despair from judgment, despair from punishment. So Paul's saying, listen, I know you've all reserved a room for me at the extended stay suites. I know you thought I was coming back, but I'm not. But it is for your benefit that I'm not. It is to spare you that I don't return to you. Because the last visit didn't go well, and if I had to return now, this next visit would be worse. Paul's saying, listen, I'm not too cowardly. Some were probably suggesting the fact that Paul had to leave that painful visit, maybe tail between his legs. He was too much of a chicken to come back to Corinth. He's saying, no, that actually is not the problem. It's not that I'm too cowardly. You all are too worldly. That's the problem. It's not your, well, he is saying it actually. It is for your welfare, right? That's why he's waiting to come to them. It's their welfare that he didn't make another painful visit. But he wrote instead. And so part of what he's saying is, listen, Better that I write a letter than show up with the lash, so to speak. That's better for you that I write this than show up. You know, if you know 2 Peter 3.9, we read, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So, in the same way that Christ delayed his second coming, and that gap of time that we live in now is the, so all we all might repent. 
Part of what Paul is saying is, listen, I'm delaying in coming to you so that you all might repent and do what you ought to do. Paul's saying, I'm acting toward you, Corinthians, as Christ has acted toward us. Now, Paul here could have played the apostolic trump card, right? He could have demanded as an apostle their submission. And you have to think at this point that would have been tempting to Paul. He had, after all, as we've seen, he'd spent 18 hard months with them. He'd worked tirelessly, preached fearlessly. He had suffered courageously. And now the Corinthians, some of them, are trashing his character and they're questioning his own integrity. Right? He's got to think the spoiled, ungrateful brats. Like, what's wrong with these people? Well, maybe he didn't think that. I shouldn't assume what Paul thought. I'd be very careful there. But notice 24. That's not where Paul goes. Paul won't, what, what do we read? He won't lord it over them and his authority, but he works with them. You know, that expression, the lord over, was used of political and military leaders. Those in authority who exercised their authority, and this is key, for their own advancement. That's how the world tends to use power. Power so that the individual profits, so to speak. That's exactly how Jesus uses the term, if you remember in Luke twenty-two thirty-five, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship, same phrase, over them. But he says it shouldn't be so with you. So Paul's saying, listen, I don't behave like worldly leaders. I don't vacillate. That's not the game I play. Paul's saying, I won't lord it over you, but instead I will labor alongside you. That's how I'm going to serve you. It's really a beautiful picture of authority exercised for the advancement of others. Friends, that's how all biblical authority ought to be exercised. For the advancement of others. Biblical authority is not just so that I gain. Again, that's how the world thinks about authority. I get to make the decisions. I get to do so for my benefit. Biblical authority says, no, it's not that I gain, but my authority is exercised so that others grow. Others prosper. And that's exactly how Christ exercised his own authority. And how Paul here is exercising his Right? Paul wants their submission, not to him, but to God. Right? He wants their obedience to God, not their obeisance to him. Right? Submission to God, not subjection to him. Like, that's what he's after. He's after their Godward relationship. It's not about him. So this image sometimes we have of a sour and dour Paul who likes to theologically trash congregations and bulldoze them, that's actually not a very good biblical picture. I mean, notice how patient Paul is. Notice how long-suffering Paul is. Paul is not about coercion. No, he persuades. Persuasion is his aim. He says in verse 24, I want you to stand in your faith. He's like, listen, I could coerce you by my faith. That won't work long-term. No, I want to persuade you to stand in your faith. So notice in the midst of the conflict... When Paul's own reputation is being ravaged there in Corinth, his concern was not his fame. No, his concern was their faith. That was Paul's concern. His goal was not, in fact, to restore his own reputation. His goal was actually to restore their repentance toward God. That's challenging, isn't it? It should be. Because again, how often in such situations are we after our reputation? 
That's what we would be after. In conflict, that's what we seek. Like we want to write our own name. But it is Paul who wrote earlier, right in 1 Corinthians, to the same congregation, 1 Corinthians 6-7, right in such moments, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? I wonder, Christian, I wonder just member of UBC, how that perspective right there, not our reputation, but another's repentance, their reconciliation with God, how that perspective might change the way we approach relationships and how we approach conflict. How might you act differently? How might you speak differently? Maybe to your brother or sister at home. Or maybe to your spouse. Maybe to a member of this church. If your concern was not first your name and what people thought of you, but God's name and what they thought about God. So when your mind, when you hear that thing and your mind immediately goes into, right, that protection mode, right, damage control, and you craft that perfect response that will, that will crush that opposition and lay them low, right? I assume I'm not the only one who does that. When that happens, when your mind begins to do that, how might Paul's approach affect how you should approach the situation? I mean, what might you say differently or what might you just not say at? if your concern was not restoring, again, your reputation, but their repentance. Paul understands his own happiness is tied to their own spiritual health. He says in 2.2, in, uh, If I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? Now notice, this doesn't keep Paul from saying the hard thing. He wrote to them in verse 3. And again, we heard from Lee how this letter grieved them that he wrote. It was a direct letter, and yet he did so. 2-4, out of much affliction and anguish of heart, right? It was gut-wrenching, gut-wrenching rather. It was gut-wrenching and heartbreaking, this letter that Paul wrote. But Paul didn't shirk back from writing the letter. Now we might, if we were in his shoes, right? Because we can either, it's fight or flight. We go one of, one of two ways. And it's much easier sometimes to gloss over problems, to downplay them, to pretend they don't exist, Maybe easier just to write people off and to, to move on as opposed to reach out to them, engage with them, and try to understand and risk being misunderstood by them. But Paul understands it is always better to warn others of certain judgment than to ignore them and by doing so also uh, foster false comfort. Right? Better to warn of certain judgment than in silence offer false kind of comfort. Now, people like Paul, those are the people we tend to cut out of our lives. We don't like the Pauls in our own lives because we don't like being confronted. And when we are, we hear it just as correction and correction is judgment. And then we like to quote Jesus in Matthew 7 and we mess him up, right? But that's where we go. But friend, you need people in your life that will confront you as Paul confronted the Corinthians that are willing to press into you, that are willing to challenge you, because that's how God speaks to you, through his word and through the witness of his people with his word. I wonder, do you have any people like Paul in your life? Or have you shut them all out? You know, I love in uh, John Henderson's Equip to Counsel class, he asked a very similar question, which made me think of it as I was, as I was reading this section. He said, who is admonishing you? 
Paul's admonishing. It's not his only tool, but he'll use it when he has to. Who's admonishing you? And if you're never being warned or admonished, he asked, what does that have to say about your own relationships? About how shallow they are. Friends, if that's you, recognize, if you have no relationships like that, you are a car with, with an engine that is plenty large. You can get up to speed. But if you have no people like that, you've got no brakes in your life. And there will come a point where you get up to sufficient speed and you're going to need those brakes and you won't have them and it will be too late. But it's also obvious Paul didn't relish this role in their lives. Yeah, he exercised it in love, though. He wrote through a flood of tears, verse 4, to let them know of the abundant love I have for you. So this, is, this severe letter was no letter from some jilted lover, right? He's no angry pastor. He's neither iron-handed nor iron-hearted, right? He's none of those things. His corrections, though, were offered out of an overflow of love to them. And friend, love is so often misunderstood these days, right? Love to us is someone giving me what I want. Love is accepting me as I am. Love is making no demands upon me. Love is placing no boundaries around me. Friends, for Paul, that's not love at all. Genuine love doesn't give us license just to live as we please. Genuine love is that which graciously turns us toward God and obedience to God. That's genuine love. So then I ask and return to that original question. How will you respond the next time your own reputation is threatened? Hopefully, not like so many politicians and nations do. Hopefully, you won't go into immediate damage control. Hopefully, you won't try to fiercely protect and fight for your own reputation at all costs. Hopefully, you'll be one who honors their word, who won't merely say whatever is expedient in the moment, but is faithful to their word as God is faithful to his word. And even more importantly, hopefully those words will be backed up by godly actions in your own life. And will live as those who have been purchased and redeemed and bought by God with a price. And so with that in mind, we'll work, therefore, to the welfare of others. Laboring for them, not lording it over them, but laboring for them in love, though painful, creating joy in their own lives. Friends, does that more? How does it need to mark you? And will that mark us as a congregation? As it needed to mark the Corinthians, will it mark us at UBC? Let's pray. Oh God, we pray and we're immediately struck at the fact that we don't have the ability to do this. We can't live this way. We can't show long-suffering and patience and grace this way. The way you have loved us, we cannot and do not love one another in the same way. And yet we ask that by your spirit, you would grant us the grace to increasingly live this way, to be marked more and more with the kind of humility and love and care that Paul had for this congregation. Lord, may that mark our relationships with one another. In Jesus' name, amen.